Hello, Kristen here with a new thing. Okay, so the bad news. We can't all move to Canada if Trump wins. The good news is that we can face whatever is coming together. And the antidote is for facing it together. It's for monthly gathering where we practice building resilience in the body long before November 5th. So you're going to practice returning to your body, your breath, and your being when the stakes are really low, when we're just in a Zoom room together, so that you build those muscles and they're easier to access when you really need them. And in case of a Trump win, you will really need them. And in case of a non-Trump win, you'll have them forever and it will be great regardless. <laughs> you can find all the details at jointheantidote.com, J-O-I-N-T-H-E-A-N-T-I-D-O-T-E.com. Promo code TRUST takes $33 off before March 12th because trust. Again, that's jointheantidote.com. Enjoy the episode and I'll see you on the other side. Hello and welcome to this episode of That's What She Said. I'm so excited for today, I have to tell you, because um, we have Catherine North with us, um, previously interviewed as Anna Kanucky, and yes, we're going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Catherine North is, she's first off, she's my friend, and also she's a masterful life coach, a stellar author, and a fellow, fellow, fellow Enneagram <laughs> for Rocking Human. Her memoir, which is why we're here, Holy Heathen, is ultimately a book about growing up displaced from American society and herself. She writes of her time growing up in Japan with her missionary parents and all the complications that living for capital G, capital W, God's will brings with it. Spoiler alert, God's will kind of sucks. Hi, Catherine. How are you? (laughs) Hi. (laughs) That was amazing. I'm like, can I borrow that amazing intro you just wrote? That was fantastic. Of course. Of course. Of course. Um, I was so excited for your book for a very, 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 very long time. And we're going to talk about why there are so many berries in there. Um, but first, just to give people an introduction, the book is called Holy Heathen, which is a title like honest politics or sober rock star. Like we do not associate (laughs) these two concepts. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about just sort of the title of the book, the general overview and why that title, like lands the plane for the whole experience yeah well growing up I was this little kid we were living in Japan because my parents were evangelical missionaries and so my family's whole job was God and I tried really hard to do God I really wanted to be one of Jesus's little lambs Um, and I had a terrible secret which was that I knew I wasn't. I just knew. I, I, I knew deep down that there was something in me that was different. I would like pray the Jesus prayer and ask Jesus into my heart. And it just didn't take. I could feel that nothing was happening. And this was very, very bad news. Right. Um, and I only had right, very bad news. This was like very bad news for a six-year-old, you know, mm-hmm. who believed very literally in heaven and hell and demons and all that jazz. And so the book really is about my journey from being that terrified little kid who decided that since she couldn't be good, she would settle for trying to look good, to appear 
good to fake goodness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at terrible cost really <laughs> it's a very bad idea <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's about how i went from being that kid to what i am now or what i was five years ago when i wrote this book which was a really thriving um, heathen mystic which is a kind of spirituality that i just made up um, it involves a lot of flowers and swearing and trees um, and a kind of holiness that I didn't have words for at all as a kid. So it's certainly not the kind of holiness that I learned about in Sunday school. It's so much better and so much more interesting. Right? Uh, to start there, I think we're just going to go straight into... Uh, I'm going to Krista tip at you a little bit to sort of spoiler alert the whole book, which is not, not chronological um, to get to the part of this. So a lot of this is watching you just violate your own holy, sacred breath, life, soul over and over and over again. And we root for you the whole time because we're like, I think she's going to make it out based on this. <laughs> But we're concerned at points. Like, I don't think she's going to get out of this. I don't know how this is possible. I uh, was concerned too at times. <laughs> right. So you're a six-year-old who's just like, yeah, I'm going to hell because this whole, this is mm -hmm. not working out for me. You're six. 100%. Okay? We have not yet mastered, like, what have you not yet mastered at six? Like, not much. Like, not I, much. You tying? I don't think I could tie my shoes when I was six. But you're already like, it's not happening for me. It is done. I am going to hell. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that's a result of really, really heavy indoctrination. And that's because it's so painful. I think that's the part of the book I've connected with the most because people that have never been indoctrinated in really deeply like spirit, quote unquote, spiritual, evangelical or religious ways, really, they're like people are just stupid if they believe that and be like, no, 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 no. It's so much more than that. And I wanted to speak to you um, from your own book about indoctrination, page 225, um, quote, it is the great mystery of my own childhood. Why didn't I tell my parents how bad school was? Not just first grade in the Japanese school, but the sadistic charismatics. Why hadn't I said something? Why indeed? Honestly, it just didn't occur to me. School was another world, a kingdom with shifting contradictory rules completely outside my parents' domain. They didn't know how to navigate it any better than I did, or so I believed at the time. It never occurred to me that they would have the authority to pull me out of school. They were so at sea when I was little, out of their element, clumsy at the language that pulled so easily into my child's brain, missing a thousand social cues a minute. If I'd imagined it, I might have seen Sensei yelling at them too, then slinking off ashamed and in disgrace like scolded school children. But there was another reason. I didn't want to showcase one more way that I was wrong. I assumed the fault was in me, not in anything that was happening. I had come to deeply believe that my own instinctual response was usually the wrong one. So my terror, my rage, my misery, these were just more damning pieces of evidence in the case that was always piling up against me. This is the true cost of indoctrinating children. They come to mistrust their own perceptions so deeply that they can't tell the difference between real right and wrong. They lose access to their own discernment and no longer trust their own sense of reality. This happens in subtle ways, even in healthy, loving families. Go kiss Uncle George, honey. Oh, come on, give him a kiss. And that inner filament gets skewed. Without that inner compass, they can only mimic what they hope will keep them safe. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the heart of all of it. I don't know if you could hear, but my, my rooster chimed in while you were reading. I don't know if you could hear that. I couldn't hear that. <laughs> like, oh, okay. It was, it was so loud here. I was like, oh. <laughs> can we just sort of start at the heart there with like, because it is very much, you've said it very succinctly there, but it is a mystery that we watch you deny your own knowing so deeply over and over and over and over again. And we root for you. Like, please come out of this. Um, can you talk to me about the ways that that indoctrination came undone and sort of the major places where you started to see like maybe all is not as it seems yeah i i think it's what you said earlier which is that to someone who has never been in that kind of a culture where everything is so steeped in you know, whatever that belief system is, and maybe it's not religion, maybe it's academia, or, you know, medicine, or a certain type of politics, like it could be anything. But when you're, you're in it so deeply, you're like a fish in water, you don't know that you're steeped in it, you don't know that it's a belief system. Um, you don't know that to the rest of the world, it might seem a little kooky right? You're just in it. It is the water you're swimming. It is the air you breathe. And so you assume because you're just a kid that it's just truth. Mm -hmm. It is the truth. And, and there's all these very convincing adults, right? Who are pretty committed to, you know, like convincing you even more that it is the truth. And so if you have something that pops up inside you that goes against what everyone around you is saying, and they're not just saying it, they're singing it in church and they're praying it. And they're, you know, it's in the prayers you say before your meals three times a day. And it's the stories you read at night. Like it's, it's really marbled into everything. Mm -hmm. So if you have something in you, that's like, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel true. I don't like this. Well, obviously you assume it must be you. It must, it must've been me. I was so sure that it must've been me. Mm -hmm. And I was a child who had such um, such big feelings. I was a sensitive kid. I was a kid with like intense emotions. I'm still a person with intense emotions. And I also came into this world with such a love for luxury and beautiful things. And like, I was that kid who would walk up to, you know, a, a six carat diamond, not that I ever actually saw a six carat diamond in real life, but I, I could walk into a store and unerringly walk up to the most expensive thing and be like, Oh, I'd like this one, please. This is pretty, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> and there were so many ways. And like, I would go to a zoo and I would see the animals and I would just cry. Like I just, I could, they, it felt so awful to see them in cages that I would just bawl my eyes out. And so like as a parent now, I have so much sympathy for those adults because, you know, like I was a little bit ridiculous as a kid. I wanted like $40,000 pink silk carpets and I didn't understand <laughs> why I couldn't have like, <clears throat> you know, like a, a beautiful diamond pendant at age seven. And right. Like I was crying all the time about all kinds of things and mm -hmm. my socks were too itchy. And so I think it, it was very easy for me to assume that I was just wrong. I just was wrong. I was mistaken or maybe I was evil or I just was like a little off, but that's okay. With the grace of God and the love of Jesus, I could probably, you know, I could probably be fixed maybe. 
And so I just was trying so hard to fix myself. And so what looks from this vantage point, did you call it a betrayal of myself or a denial of, of self? It's more, I think it's more of a denial. Like you would feel it and be like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Definitely felt it. But then immediately, no, 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 no. <laughs> yes. Because I was trying to fix myself. Right. I would feel these terrible, horrible urges like, gee, I don't want to become a missionary. I want to go be a famous actress and wear fancy dresses. Oh my God. What a horrible, sinful, scandalous, greedy, awful desire. Okay. Tamp that down. Got to fix it. Got to fix it. No, no. I should want to, I don't know, help starving children somewhere. There's, well, there's God's kind of work. There's a very clear division, that, and you can tell me if this is true in your case, that I experienced growing up, which was like, it's understood that God's work means that you, first off, you do not live in the nation where you were born, okay, because that's just fucking lazy. So <laughs> you were a missionary. Like, I grew up in the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church, okay? Mm-hmm. So the missionaries come in, and we all give them money and praise and food and whatever they need, and then they go back to do, quote unquote, God's work in like deepest wherever, but it's Mm -hmm. always deepest. It's always like rural and muddy and their life is the worst. And they give up everything in order to be with and commune with and share the love of God. So it was God's work is like level A and then everything else, no matter what it is that you do is level B, you're just sort of an ordinary human. Yeah, and then there's like a level like D, E, F, which is like bad humans. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we need to know. Nadia Boltz-Weber says we're addicted to knowing who we're better than. So, like, mm. I might only be doing a B or a C, but, like, at least I'm not, like, D. Oh. Right? Like, I didn't even just want to become, like, a school teacher or a doctor or something yeah. that was, like, kind Those of fine and <laughs> Yes. No, no. I wanted to be, like, a rock star or, like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a witch or something. Like, so, like, my longings were so... Um, scandalous yeah, to my community to dance and drink alcohol yes oh I did God. I wanted to dance <laughs> I wanted to wear red silk and I wanted to wear red lipstick like oh my god everyone knows nice girls and nice ladies don't wear lipstick at all let alone red lipstick like you know right 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 right, right. yeah because being like looking matronly and like you don't care is in importance to this process modest yes you yeah. should be modest yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was so much about me that was so outlandish, um, you know, compared to the, the world I was in. And so I did deny myself and I did betray myself, but I did it because I was trying to be safe and I was trying to be good. I tried so hard to be good in it. My God, it almost killed me. Yeah. Good is a, uh, it's a box that, oh, it's a trap. It's a trap, but we try. Um, mm-hmm. so which parts of yourself there's like the dampening and the ignoring and the rejecting like the pink carpet's not happening you're gonna get whatever you get you know um which parts of yourself are sort were the hardest to reclaim probably being the most recent um from those and are there any parts that you're still actively reclaiming that are like Mm. that there's a the way that i feel about my past with um, christianity in particular is that you first you have to to walk away you have to accept that you're going to hell which is a very big step mm-hmm. and then once you've accepted that you're going to hell you can begin to reclaim all the smaller bits and ways of thinking that you've accomplished or not accomplished that you've sort of gathered yeah. over the years so yeah i which mean i think the part is to gather back <laughs> yeah that's such a good question um 
the most fundamental thing was to reclaim, and I think this was the hardest, was to reclaim my right to say what was good and right for me, mm. to make my own decisions, right? It's like that passage that you just read, to say, I get to decide what is good and what is not, and what is true and what is false. That was so scandalous. That was so heathenish, right? To use the word from mm-hmm. the title, mm-hmm. like the message of who the fuck do you think you are, you sinful little girl, mm-hmm. was so deep, was so deep, right? Like I, of course I had no authority. I was not a man. I was not a pastor. I was not particularly good. I had no like church authority. Um, and so my whole life, I was taught that I, I literally did not know what was right and what was wrong. I had to have someone else tell me. I had to have a, a pastor in a pulpit tell me. I needed a musty old book. I needed something from the Bible, but of course, only as interpreted by, you know, some older man right. in the pulpit. Yes. Right? And it's, so that fundamental right to say, I like this. I don't like that. This is good. This is bad. Or this feels good. This feels bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I am going to do this. I am not going to do that. That, that was like the, the most basic thing. It sounds so simple, but my God, it took a lot of work to decide because I never really believed that I had that right, but I just decided that I was going to claim it anyway. Yeah. But that one decision doesn't mean that there won't be, there are thousands of decisions to come. Oh no, Yeah. Well, how do I feel yeah. about this? Well, like other people's opinions come. Like, well, no, 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 no. How do I feel about it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to. Um, I feel like this was sort of the breakthrough. Page eighty-two. Um, quote, and then as they kept talking, 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 something happened. Something amazing. Something that qualifies in my mind as a bona fide goddamn miracle. In the midst of my frustration and embarrassment and explanations, some tiny and earnest part of me stepped back and watched the discussion at a slight distance. It cocked its head. Wait a minute, it silently noted. They're not listening to reason. They're not listening at all. They're not paying attention. They're just trying to scare me. It was just a moment, just a tiny nanosecond of hesitation. And yet that moment was the beginning of my rebellion, though it would take years to reach its full fury. It was just a tiny seed of straightforward information. What do you know? These people are a little nuts. Instantly, I batted it back. You can't say that. Too late. That knowledge was such a surprising little kernel. It was like a little incredulous bean sprout unfurling in my soul. Seconds later, it withered in a hot blast of shame, of course. But that is the thing about those moments of truth. You can smash them down, but it never works for long. They keep raising their impotent heads and arching their skeptical eyebrows. They keep popping up in the most friendly way saying, hello, what the fuck is going on here? (laughs) Yeah, there were those moments. But again, at the time, it seemed to me like a sign that I was so wrong and so broken, you know? And so it was this, this like long unfolding process of grappling with like, that little bean sprout, right? That like popped up and was like, hmm, something doesn't seem right here. Hmm, this is very odd. Hmm, right? Like I was like, oh, that's the bad part of me. 
right? That's the, that's the one that's, that's going to get me in trouble. And yet it got stronger and stronger and stronger. So then you until, you know, (laughs) sorry, sorry, say that again. So then you feel more and more and more broken. Yes. I felt more and more broken. And yet I also could not deny that this tiny little bean sprout kept getting bigger and stronger and stronger and bigger until it was like this big, strong, sturdy, healthy tree in me. Mm-hmm. And yet there was this like cesspool, this swamp full of like syringes and, and nastiness. And it kept being like, the swamp is better. And I'd be like, I don't know, this tree feels really good. It's really flourishing. Look, it's growing apples now, you know, no, no, go back to the swamp. That's the right place to be. Right? So there was like, it kept getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. Um, but it took a long time. It took a long time. And, and it was these tiny baby steps. And I don't maybe want to jump ahead too much, but it was things like when I was supposed to go off to a nice safe Bible college, I went off to Bryn Mawr, you mm-hmm. know, instead. Right. Um, and then I made all of these sort of tiny decisions that were also huge at the time. Say more. I got lost. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait, where was I going with that? I don't know. It's okay. Mm. Is it, um, there were like, so you're supposed to, there's a part of what comes as far as I can tell with being a person whose, whose job is God is that then there's a plan for you. And the plan is very clear and you did not appear to give a fuck about the plan. Um, or like you tried to like the, I did, I gave so many fucks, but I just couldn't do it. Like, God, I tried so hard. I mean, I, I did go off to the, you know, the wild left liberal, uh, feminist university, but then I, I got married at 21, right. To another Christian. I was a virgin on my wedding night. Like that is trying really hard. Yeah. That's, you were so, um, was, you were still so not good, but that fits very well into the good box. I tried so clear. hard to be it. Yeah. I, I checked so many good boxes and yet I could not change the fact that deep down it wasn't right. And I was so miserable in my young and ill-advised marriage um, that I ultimately ended up like, like, like just leaping from it. <laughs> like it was a ship on fire, you know? And that was one of those those big decisions that felt so dramatic. And yet in retrospect is like, well, duh, you're like barely 21. You married someone you hardly knew and it didn't work out. That is not a shocking thing. And yet at the time (laughs) it felt so shocking and so Mm -hmm. horrible, right? Like leaving the marriage was also leaving my church, Mm -hmm. leaving my community, kind of coming out as someone who didn't, buy it anymore like it it felt so dramatic and so um what's the word like scary at the time and scandalous yeah um that was actually one of the hardest scenes for me to read that there's this scene in which you were just absolutely miserable in this marriage and all you want <laughs> is for the church ladies gathered at your house to like see that uh, hope you untangle these threads of your feelings and experiences and instead, like, they don't help. They silence you. They, everybody goes back to washing ditch, dishes, like marriage is hard work, marriage is for Jesus, marriage is God's will. You get nothing. 
And what's fascinating is that I perceive you like having known you not at age 21 as so fierce that I cannot imagine this sad, sorry, quiet creature just like sinking into a lifetime of slog. Just like, well, this, this what it has to be. Um, and at the same time, like I did a very similar thing and stayed in a marriage for seven years too long at age you know, 24, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about what you've learned from sinking into the slog, which you very much tried to do. And then tell me what you learned about like escaping it because those things are important. And what we watch, what's really hard about it is that you're having very real and valid feelings. You are completely correct in your assessment of the situation. And at some level, everyone around you is gaslighting you. So what's so interesting about that moment in the kitchen is that as much as I felt silenced and I felt like, oh, I I threw out this like opener hoping that someone would would meet me or see me. Mm -hmm. I was also really cowardly. I think I even said in the book, I was like, I was hoping that someone would bear my soul, but I was not about to go first. I was so Mm -hmm. invested in keeping up the facade of like, yeah, marriage, ha, ha, ha. it's kind of hard sometimes. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> um, and then when everyone else is like, oh yeah, but it's good. Then I'd be like, yep, so good. Ha, ha, love it, love being married, right? Like I was also faking so hard and I'm a pretty good actor. I ended up turning it into my career, right? I was good at faking. I had had a whole lifetime of practice. I remember talking with other actors about like training as actors. And I was like, I don't really understand this as a concept. You just do that thing that you do all the time in public with people. Like you just pretend, what do you mean? Like I had turned myself, I had essentially trained myself as an actor in my life because I pretended so hard every minute of every day. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, you I literally professional was actor, to become- so you just yeah, you just weren't a professional actor with no formal training <laughs> because I had become very good at it. <laughs> so I was so really like, miserable. This is a mystery. Yeah. Like, well, everyone, you just pretend. You pretend to be happy, just like I pretend to be happy every minute. What are you talking about? That's, that's just what we do. That's called adulting. So, to that moment in the kitchen, what's funny is I am still in touch with some of those women now. And they are such amazing, badass, compassionate women. And, and, at the time, they were like for the time, they were involved in this church that was incredibly um, progressive, incredibly focused on social justice, racial justice. Like many of these women worked uh, doing intensely, like what's the word, visionary work. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what would have happened. If instead of keeping my facade together, I had I hadn't just been like, so marriage, it's hard. I had been like, no, you guys, I'm really losing it. I don't think I can do this. It feels like I'm dying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would have gotten a totally different response. I think I don't know, right? I can't run this experiment right. because I can't right. go back in time. <laughs> you know, right. and mm-hmm. and it's true that like just as I have grown into a different person, they also have grown into different people. And I'm certainly not saying that everybody would have responded that way. But when I think to that particular moment in the kitchen, because that was a, a real scene, and I think about the particular women who were there, I think if I had been a little bit more courageous and I had peeled back a little bit sooner, just how in trouble. I was, who knows what would have happened? Mm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Right? Right. I know. I know. And so that was one of those choices. Like, even though I had gotten married as a virgin, 
Um, and I was in the church, like I had still chosen this church that was like very leftist and very open-minded, you know, compared to the world I knew. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like, I'm trying to kind of make these little tiny choices. Um, but, oh, I just, I couldn't hack it. I could not hack being married. Yeah. It was so painful. (laughs) I just remember like looking around and being like, well, it's too late because, you know, God and holiness. And you I said forever. You said, said forever. Plus like, look at all these wedding dishes. There's like China mm-hmm. now. I, that's it. I can't, now I really can't get out. This is real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it just is so absurd now. Like I cannot even believe that I thought that way, but I really, really thought that way. Yeah. Yeah. I remember <sighs> the divorce and being like, no, cause the dog who would get the dog? Like, that's not a reason to stay married. Just so mm-hmm. we're clear. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. So after you have this like really effectively scary version of marriage in which you're just like, I don't know the person and I'm just following the boxes and checking the, the good, the good ticks is what I'm trying to get. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you find the courage to get married again? And how has your first marriage shaped your marriage to Nick? Oh, Mm. Yeah, this is a part of my story that I think even just to be clear. (laughs) Sorry, say that again. I do not have the the courage to get married again. Just to be clear, like it ain't happening. Um, So I experienced marriage as a prison, but you also basically experienced marriage as a prison. But then, like you did it, you're doing it. I did, and this is a part of the story that doesn't even come up in the book. But I mean, first of all, it was almost twenty years later. Like I waited a good long time, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like really almost two full decades, not quite, but almost. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also vowed to myself never again. I was never going to get married again. And I was never going to change my name again. And it's funny because even there, that's another example of like a place where I was trying to kind of push against the grain because we, I didn't change my name to his name. We both hyphenated our names, which in that Christian world was like, what the hell are you doing? But anyway, so once I got out, right? Yeah. Oh, that was not a sarcastic big deal, by the way. That was a really like, that is a big deal. Oh no, it was a big deal. That's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, did I even really love my husband if I wouldn't change my name to his and I made him, you know, hyphenate mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so I got out. Oh my God. So messily. And I swore I would never, never, ever again. I also felt like marriage was a prison and I was never going to do that again. Um, And even when I entered into a really significant relationship in my life with the father of my eldest daughter, we did not get married. That was like a thing that we both felt really clear about. Um, And it wasn't until, and then that relationship ended and I moved to a different continent. And, you know, there I was this like happy solo mom, me and my, my one kid. And I just fell so madly and deeply and wildly and absurdly in love with this human and I had never known it could be like that and I, I think we probably would have wanted to get married anyway but being our case honestly it was a partly a practical decision Nick lived in Canada I lived in the states we both had kids we both had exes there was visas and custody issues there's a lot of you know adulting at play and so Partly it was just that it made sense to legally get married. But I think what you're really asking is how did you have the audacity to like throw yourself into, into this thing that felt so 
what it, it was a kind of surrender it was like a kind of jumping off of, of a cliff and the truth is I don't know I have no idea it still scares me <laughs> I am both a million percent convinced it was the right thing I would do it again a thousand times over and I'm still fucking terrified like holy shit this is scary <laughs> yeah. yeah I think that that part is like well that's deeply honest and refreshing I feel like there's a um, there's a Barack Obama bumper sticker that someone has on a card near here that says like the way to keep going in the face of everything is to blank and blank but the there those are in different colors and so it just wears away like there's literally a white box where those the <laughs> secret is to blank and blank like that's what I'm laughing at I'd be like I don't know <laughs> that's pretty much me I don't know I have no idea what I'm doing still <laughs> even after all these years and all this inner work and all of the like you know tangible ways I can point to that's like I have healed that shit I have walked away from bad things I have created beautiful new blooming things and still I have no fucking clue what I'm doing I don't know <laughs> that's amazing and honest and I love it thank you for not just making something up like well you see there's a six-step process that I like to use oh god no I don't believe people who say they've got it all figured out I don't trust them no 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 oh <laughs> oh um, so another question I have, uh, sort of a, a left turn from marriage. Um, I remember driving around rural Canada in a van with you and you were trying to find the courage to publish this book so that it would be okay with your parents who you were afraid of hurting with letting these words into the open. Mm -hmm. And that took like a long time, like how or why, or tell me the story of how you found the strength to make publication happen anyway. And you obviously you had a worst case scenario with your parents in your head. What did your parents have to say about the book? Well, not hurting my parents was the reason really that it took me 10 years to, to bring this book to life. Um, they are just the most wonderful, loving, delightful humans you will ever meet. They have the kindest hearts. They have like the purest souls, truly. They are like love in action. I adore them. Um, and I mean, I have already caused them a lot of grief by just living through all of the things that are in this book, <laughs> to, right? Like <laughs> to then write it all down and particularly to share some of the pieces of my childhood where in spite of their love and in spite of their 100% good intentions, I still kind of got fucked up a little bit. Mm -hmm. That felt so hurtful. And I, I just, I so didn't want to hurt them. And yet I also had such an intense, like, I don't know, like feeling, yearning, pushing, like this book was like burning a hole in me. It was eating me alive from the inside for years. And so the way that I thought I would resolve this quandary it was a really good idea. It was a really good plan. What would happen was that I would write the manuscript in deep secret. Mm -hmm. And then I would, I mean, I, my parents knew I was writing a book, but I wouldn't show it to anybody in the whole world. And then I would send it to some fancy New York agents and they would buy it. And then some big New York publisher would publish it with a bunch of fanfare. And I would be able to send my parents the manuscript and say, I know this may be hurtful. I'm so sorry, but look, it's going to be a huge New York Times bestseller and critically acclaimed and it's going to help millions of people. And so it's worth it. Hmm. 
that was my plan. It was a good plan. So like I, the, the, the courage to shape the words, make the words, tell the stories, write them down and record them is that's not enough. It had to, like, there had to be a, an enormous payout on the other side to make it worth it. Because I felt like, well, if that, you know, sort of, um, if those gatekeepers gave it the stamp of approval, then my parents would understand. They've known I've always wanted to be a writer. Like they would want that for me. They would understand that it was like really a, a worthy cause. Oh, okay. Okay. And then what changed? Does that make sense? Because I don't think, I, as far as I know, you didn't, that it didn't play out that way. You didn't My get God, no. the agent and the times and the... Nope. So I sent it to like 40 million <laughs> agents. They all said, yeah, no, thank you. Um, so I just was like, oh, silly me. What a, what a foolish human I've been. Um, I will now take my embarrassing, mortifying, humiliating manuscript that was going to hurt my parents anyway, and I will tuck it away in a drawer forever. Mm. But then it kept eating me alive from the inside. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, before when you were asking about reclaiming, right, there's so many different parts of myself that I had to reclaim. I reclaimed my sexuality. I reclaimed um, myself as someone who had the possibility, the potential to be a mother. I reclaimed my spirituality. Um, and this was one of the hardest things for me to claim was my, my right to tell my story. And so because it kept eating me alive and because wise, beloved, trusted people like Kristen Kalb kept saying, you know, I really think you should consider publishing. And I was like, nope, nope, it's a failure. No one wanted it. Couldn't get it published the old fashioned way. So that's it. Now it must wither and die. <laughs> it is doomed. Doomed. It is doomed. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but because wise humans kept nudging me and because it literally was like a tiger tearing me apart from the inside. Um, I kept working with the manuscript and I kept talking to wise people and I got people to help me and read drafts until it was the truest and most loving version I knew how to write. Mm. And then I went on a writing retreat in Hawaii with Alexandra Franzen and some beautiful kindred spirits and it poured rain for like seven days straight. And I, in the dark, in the rain with like two women literally holding my hands and my shoulders because I was shaking so hard I hit send on the email to my parents with the manuscript and I said I want to self-publish this here's my here's what I'm working with here's my draft mm -hmm. and they have been amazing there were some squirmy <laughs> conversations yeah they were been amazing they did not disown me um, I say in the acknowledgments, it turns out it is impossible to flunk out of my family. <laughs> and they, as always, have met me with warmth and compassion and humor. And it doesn't mean that there weren't awkward moments. There were. There were some really squirmy moments. Um, but my family has been amazing. And they have given the book their blessing. And they have <sighs> just been so lovely. And it hurts my heart. Like in some ways it would be 
easier if they were spiky because then I could be spiky back, but they are soft. And so I keep trying to be soft and God, it's fucking hard to be soft. It hurts. It's all like tender and painful. Mm -hmm. The love, it hurts, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it does. I'm so glad that that was the reaction though. Like it makes me laugh because wow, all that wasted angst, but like so much wasted angst. (laughs) Also look at my parents' track record. Like look at the things that they have come around to over the years, you know? Yeah. Um, And it was never that I thought that they would be mad at me or disown me. It was that I just was so afraid it would, it would hurt them. And I, Mm -hmm. I, I think it did, you know, I mean, as a parent, Lordy, the karma can you even imagine what my children will write about me? <laughs> yeah, but that's their right to write about that's you. That's their right, and I, I hope they will. Yeah. Uh, tangent question that may or may not be interesting to you. You can just reject it if you'd like. I noticed that you, <laughs> you wrote, penned, just like birthed this memoir as, as Anna. Kanucky, and you eventually released it as Catherine North. So Mm -hmm. can you please comment on the journey that it took to get from one name to the other? And did that play into the book at all? Or was that like, am I just making up shit? But like, that's not actually important. Mm, Interesting. I don't, well, I'll tell you the story and you can draw your own conclusions. So I fell in love. I moved to Canada. I went from being a single mom of one kid to a married mom of five kids you know, living in the suburbs, driving a van, it just about lost my mind, but I kind of made it through mostly, got most of it back. Um, and my husband and I, he's a transgender man. And so he wanted to change his first name. And we had talked about what we would do with last names when we got married. Neither of us wanted to take each other's name. So we decided, you know what, we'll just make up our own last name. And we chose North for all kinds of personal and symbolic and metaphorical reasons. And we loved it. And I've never really felt connected with the name Anna. It never really felt like mine. It's a perfectly lovely name. I think it's a beautiful name on other people. Um, And it wasn't that I hated or disliked it. It just never really felt like mine. And I had always sort of secretly thought of myself as Catherine with a K very important that it's with a K. And one day Nick and I were talking about names and he was like, he was like, do you ever, do you ever um, think you might have a different name? Actually, this must've been before he transitioned because I, I think it was actually a way for him to kind of open up the conversation, but I was oblivious at the time. Mm-hmm. And he, <laughs> he was like, do you ever think you might have a, a different name? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, like, I sometimes think your name is like Catherine with a C or with a K. And I was like, well, with a K, and then I was like, wait, what? What did you just say? <laughs> I sometimes think your name is Catherine. And I was like, how did you know? And you know, he didn't know it was a big deal. He's like, I don't know. I just, it's what? And I was like, that's like my secret name for myself that I've had for years. It was on my passwords for years. Like, um, yeah. And so as we talked about changing our last names and then as he changed his first name, I was like, you know what? I really want to change my name too. So that again, Kristen, to answer your earlier question is a kind of reclaiming, Mm. like to get to rename yourself. That is kind of an audacious thing to do. It is. I'm really glad that my name feels like my name because I would change it. Yeah. (laughs) I love your name. Yeah. 
And I love my name now too. And I will say that that's not why I changed it. Um, I changed my name before I decided to publish the book. But I will say that I like the fact that having a totally different name um, and because I changed all of the names of the characters in the book um, does mean that I think it adds a layer of anonymity and protection to all the people who are in the book who might not appreciate uh, being written about in such a way. It's true. It's true. It's actually like a, it's a bonus for everyone involved. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. quite nice. Quite yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, I have to say your big, deep love of all that is alive is so evident throughout this book. Like personally, mm. I have to tell you an embarrassing thing. Um, personally, oh God, I can't wait. Your, your love of tulips. Okay. So this took, this is over years, right? From like Catherine on Instagram, Anna on Instagram, um, just always obsessed with tulips. I'm like, I get it. The tulips, right? What are you? have tulips. <laughs> okay. I get it. Right. And then like cut to three years later and I'm like, perhaps I will buy some tulips. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And like cut to three more years later and I'm like, oh my God, we have flowers in the budget. Flowers are in the budget and they do not come out. It does not matter if we are poor, we will have the flowers. And the, like the, the active, like, it's not about, because I saw you making beauty for no good reason, not to be interesting, not to be like, oh my God, you guys, I'm an influencer and look at my tulips and these are the best tulips, hashtag tulips or us or whatever the <laughs> fuck, right? Like you, I saw you making beauty for the sake of making beauty. And I was like, I rejected that completely at first, which is an indicator that it was actually like a deeply <laughs> essential part of me. It was like, oh my God, I do that too. I make beauty all the time. I just don't photograph it and share it on Instagram. So what would you like the world to change about its understanding of beauty as a strength and a balm and whatever other words you want to use, not as this like optional feature of life? I'll tell you mine in a minute, but first I'm dying to know. Okay, so now when you look at tulips and they're in the budget and they're non-negotiable, like what, what do you feel when, when you look at the tulips or you commune oh. with the tulips? It's this deep sense of like, it doesn't, um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what else is going on. We can make beauty right here, right now. The beauty is not optional and beauty is not for later. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's so easy to push it to later. Like, well, no, I don't, you know, like I'll just make my house beautiful if someone's coming to visit or like, if, like I'm obsessed with like mom's coming over or, or instead of like, no, I'm going to make my house beautiful because I live here and mm -hmm. I also have to be an important inhabitant of this house. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I've always sort of done that. I've always been very good at making my spaces look pretty, but mm -hmm. I always sort of treated beauty as like, well, you know, I mean, it's just like pretty, it's not like important or anything. That's sort of frivolous, yeah. right? It's like Absolutely this frivolous. distraction. Yeah. It's a very top layer. And, you know, if you just mm -hmm. decorate in all neutrals with no personality or beauty whatsoever, but that's just as good as my personal beauty making. And it's not. <laughs> agree. It's, Hard it's agree. Um, <laughs> so I think part of you, and you didn't say a goddamn word. It's like watching Lizzo just be Lizzo on Instagram. You didn't have to lecture me about the tulips. I could just feel like there's something in her that's resonating with me and it's to do with tulips, but I don't understand. Um, and it was just about like, let's just normalize like beauty is for you. And if you choose to put it on social media, great. 
but I just make beauty for me and that's freeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think beauty is, it's such a holy thing for me. It's a holy practice. It's like a sacred, a sacred part of life. It's like a sacred energy. So when I looked at tulips, when I was little, I could like feel them humming in my body. Mm-hmm. And they had like kind of this pink like light that they would give off. And, and I would walk around looking at all the flowers and just be like, it's so interesting because they almost were all pink. Even if the flower was like yellow, mostly they gave off this pink light. And I could like, he- I don't know if I could hear them or like feel them. It was like a vibration in my body. Mm-hmm. And I used to try to, and I tried to, I wrote about this in the book. I tried to draw tulips and with like a marker, like a red marker and a green marker, right? And three triangles. And I was so frustrated because I was like, no, there's something here. There's like this magic here. And I, I didn't have words for it. And the adults around me were like, oh my God, kid, like, why is nothing ever good enough? I just drew you a perfectly good tulip. And I was like, it's just three triangles. It doesn't have any magic in it. <laughs> <laughs> and so then when I became a grown up, and I always lived in cities, so I never... Um, I never had anything growing, but I craved like growing things. And so I would buy fresh cut flowers and I was always kind of broke. So it felt like such a decadent thing, but I would find that when I had a flower in my presence, I could feel it again, just like when I was a kid, even though it wasn't in the ground, even if it wasn't, you know, technically alive, it didn't have roots anymore. Like I had this presence to it. It had an, an energy to it. And I still feel that way. And I feel that way particularly about flowers. Um, I also love beauty in all forms. I love candles and textiles and bedspreads and paint and paintings and beautiful collections of objects that give us a certain feeling inside. But I especially love flowers. And I, I think that actually this is something that's unfolding right now. This is not in the book, but this is something that's happening for me now is I actually think that there is some kind of I'll call it magic, some sort of energetic work that I am, I'm like on the cusp of learning, or I'm going to learn how to do, or I'm maybe I'm in the process of learning it. And I don't even know yet, but it has something to do with flowers. And I was chatting with Madre, who's a character in the book who no one else can see, but I can see her. She's very real. Mm -hmm. Um, If you haven't read the book, I sound really nutty right now, but that's okay. So I was chatting with Madre just a couple of weekends ago. And I was like, it was like flowers, flowers, flowers. And I was like, yes, flowers, they're like medicine. And she was like, yes, yes. And I was like, flowers are magic. And she was like, yes, they are. And I was like, oh, like I used to say kind of as a joke, flowers are my religion, but like, maybe that's really true. Like there's some deeper, there's something deeper here for me to discover. And she was like, yes, yes. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to become an apothecary and I'm going to grow (laughs) flowers and I'm going to dry them and grind them up. And I'm going to make like teas and herbs and tinctures, right? That's like, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. And she was like, oh my God, why do you humans always think that you have to kill something to take its magic? I'm like, oh, right. Okay. Also, I would be a terrible apothecary. Physical world stuff is really hard. Mm -hmm. No, that doesn't even make any sense. So I'm back to like, I don't know what I'm doing with flowers, but it's something and they're full of magic. And I feel more like myself when I have them around and I am no longer living in a city. I'm now living on this green Island in the forest and I am going to try to grow so many flowers. And to date, I am a terrible gardener, but I also feel really strongly that I'm, I'm supposed to, I want to grow 
flowers, that they are a kind of magic that I want to surround myself with. And, and Kristen, this is that beauty for just no reason, right? Like this is, I'm never going to sell flowers at the market. I'm not going to make them into teas and candles. Like, it's not about that. I just, I want to surround myself with flowers um, because I just want to feel that amazingly delicious energy. It's like people who do yoga and they don't even post about it. And I'm like, oh, I only do yoga if I need to feel virtuous about myself, but they just do it because they love it. I don't understand that as a concept, but I think it's amazing, but that's how we feel about flowers and about beauty. Mm-hmm. And I think we've learned to learn with pain. Like for all of our flaws as humans, we have learned oh. to take our pain and right, alchemize it and transmute it. And we've learned to use it to make us wiser and more compassionate. And sometimes we use it to spur social justice um, and it's made us like more empathic humans. And I think pain is an amazing teacher. And also I would really like to be done with pain as my teacher and I choose beauty as my next teacher. Yeah, that um, learning through pain versus learning through joy or learning through what lights you up, learning through beauty, learning through, it's the difference between like learning through North Star of like, that's the place I want to go and learning through uh, what Rob Bell calls South Star, which is like, oh, that's the opposite of where I would like to go. And if you're like, I don't know who would be a South Star in my life. I have two words and they are Mitch McConnell. <laughs> like every, just pick a feature. Okay. That's a South Star. Okay. But then, like, the trick is that instead of just being like, I'm so angry, Mitch McConnell is an asshole, fuck face, turtle man, right? Which he is. Can I, can I be that too, though? <laughs> right. <laughs> that there's the part of you that's like, but what can I take joyfully and leave the rest? Like, I am, like, I will be the opposite of everything that he is. And I will be beautiful with using Mitch mm. McConnell as my teacher instead of letting the pain of how terrible I find him be a thing to let the beauty of like, my God, isn't it fantastic that um, number one, I don't have to be a politician. That's just fantastic news to me. And number two, that I can choose to stand for everything that is basically the opposite of what he stands for at like a one-on-one level to just be like, Mm -hmm. watch him be cruel and you will be kinder as a result. Watch your rights and you will open rights to people wherever and however you can. Yeah. So just watching. So what a good teacher. Oh, right. Exactly. Sweet. Mitch McConnell. If he right. lies, we will tell the truth. Yes. If and the he more he lies, the more we tell the truth. Yeah. I like never thought of it that way. I love that. That's a Rob Bell concept, by the way. Um, the hmm. South Star, it's his most recent podcast episode. And I was just like, these words, they are so important because I've spent my whole life looking for North stars and then being like, well, you're not a North star. So what good are you to me? Instead of like, oh, hmm. we have to learn from everyone and South stars are just as helpful. <laughs> and I love that concept too, because sometimes you have no idea what your North star is. And even the concept of trying to know what it is feels so painful and makes you feel like such a loser. And so like, I'm thinking back to the time when I was stuck in this horrible, horrible marriage and I didn't know what I wanted, right? I couldn't have put words to it. I I literally, the concept of like freedom, joyful self, you know, defined living was like, I didn't know those words. And plus they were very new age and not good. And so I could not have said what I wanted, but I did know what I didn't want, right? Like I, Mm -hmm. I could not, I didn't want to feel trapped. I didn't want to feel wrong. I didn't want to feel guilty all the time. I didn't want to 
you know, like, right. Like, so sometimes it's just really helpful to know what you don't want and then be like, oh, I feel, I hate feeling trapped. Maybe I want freedom. Like it, it's almost like this amazing, right. It's like the, the ingredients for what you do want are right there in, in what feels so painful, but you can flip them. Yeah. And the flip is important. And I think that when people learn to, or just even make an effort to learn through joy, beauty, like any quote unquote good word that we have, there's such a, a world of opportunity that opens up because it isn't just like, I will learn through the pain and the more that it hurts, the more I will learn is very like mm-hmm. no pain, no gain, gym class 101. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't serve the parts of us that are actually really expansive and that don't want to just learn through being hurt and stung and abused and traumatized. Um, I think at mm-hmm. some level that that's what the book is so, so beautifully illustrates um, that we come back around to this place where you do have beauty, you do have freedom, you did escape, you did get out, you, you did wait long enough that we don't feel like we're walking through wounds and then we just feel sad for you that we walk mm. all the way through these things with you and we come to like, oh, I can breathe again. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, because I didn't just jump from the pain to like, now there's beauty and flowers and they speak to me. Like it was really messy in there for a while. And I think it's, I wanted to tell this story because I wanted to tell that part of how messy it was and how I got out and I didn't do it gracefully. And I still am so glad I got out anyway. And I would tell anyone who feels trapped in a in an impossible situation? If you can't get out gracefully, get out messily. Just get out, right? Mm-hmm. And like I kept, I made so many mistakes and I stumbled and I, I, I have done so much healing work and every bit of it was so worthy and so worthwhile. And that's how I ended up here. And that's how I keep going on to wherever I am next. And I have no idea, but apparently there's a lot of flowers involved. Of course, there are flowers involved. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I think the other part of it that's really easy to dismiss is that the people that are putting, that are like, I love the tulips. It's so easy to be like, do you even know what pain is, honey? Have, has anything painful ever happened to you? You're so naive. You're so, oh my God, mm-hmm. how can you be worried about that? When like, what, like, and it's not about that. It's about like, you, we can read this book and we can be like, this is hell. These are various forms of hell that this woman has endured. And she comes out the other side, like let her have her goddamn tulips because she knows what she loves and she loves it with all her heart. So at some level, it's this big giant love letter to like, it's not about the beauty being the the, the, the most important thing. It's about after, there's all this mess and we can just be like, well, it's mess and we're fucked. Or we can reclaim beauty, like actively, like claw it back to us and appreciate it and be like, this is how I choose to live. I choose to put beauty in front of me every step of the way. Yeah. 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 So um, I wanted to read one last thing from you. We didn't get to talk about Mr. Wilkins, but everybody just fucking buy Holy oh, Heat and read about Mr. Wilkins. Mr. My, Wilkins. He's, he's such my, a dear he's man. He's my favorite of the characters and if that's not his real name that's fine but I love Mr. Wilkins yeah if you ever wonder if one person can have an impact on someone else's life there are two people in this book who totally shifted the trajectory of mine and they probably had no idea they were even doing it I feel like Mr. Wilkins was a shifter yeah 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 um Mr. Wilkins oh I'm gonna leave it as a teaser because you need to go and buy the book everyone (laughs) 
Um, so this is from page 218, and I thought this would be the good closer for you to comment on. And then I have some other questions for you, but this one just felt like, ooh, this might land the plane. Quote, maybe the dissonance between my yearning for a loving God and the fearsome, inconsistent, bloody male God I encountered in Christianity caused a deep despair that feels like a wound. Maybe I'm feeling the grief of our blue planet as we take and take from her. Maybe I'm sensing the great human body crying out for some kind of healing because it is my mission to be a spiritual healer. Maybe I'm a drama queen. Maybe it's all of the above. Maybe I came, became human because I wanted to figure something out, how to push my way through to love even when it wasn't handed to me on a platter. Maybe that's why we're all here. So those words make me cry and I personally <laughs> I personally would like to take the people that rejected this book and like punch them in the parts of their bodies that are prone to injury and pain. Because like, what the fuck is wrong with them? I just have to say, like, I don't know who rejected you, but fuck all of them. So many uh, of them. Many. <laughs> <laughs> dozens and dozens. Yeah, well, because you would talk to me. Like, I didn't read the book until it like came out, came out. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, it seems like you're getting a lot of rejection. I mean, this book can't be that good because- the, Right, like, it must suck pretty hard. And then I was like, oh my God, all these people suck. Whoever said, like, because I cried, I can't tell, okay, I can tell you when I cried because I mark it. And there are like, there's so many spots. I mean, literally I'm looking at my turned up pages, more than 20 spots where I just had to like take a minute, have a cry, have some feelings, feel seen, <laughs> feel validated, scream me too at the book as if you could hear me telekinetically, you know, like me too, Catherine, me too, me too. Take photos of it, send it to my friends and be like, look at this page. Do you feel like this? I know how you did feel like this. Um, so Aww. I just like your the places where you pushed through and you did put love on your plate even when it wasn't given to you in such a big way and in a like in the face of like no 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 you did it anyway and I just want to fucking fall at your feet and say thank you oh thank you thank you so much oh, publishing this book was the scariest thing I've ever done and I've done some things, you know. You have. So <laughs> <laughs> you have. Yeah. But, yeah. When I was when I was working on it with someone who I, I love and trust, um, there's really only one person who saw this book, except for my husband, before I sent it to my parents. And she said, you know, you you don't answer this question in the book of like, where does the pain come from? Because like, yes, some scary things happened to me as a kid, but like, there are people who live through genocides and don't, you know, and, and like, in some ways, my, the pain I felt seemed out of proportion to my life experiences. And she's like, you don't ever quite answer that question. And, you know, we went back and forth and back and forth. And I was like, I know you're right. But the thing is that I, I don't have an answer to that question. And I think that that is my answer is that some of us just are here with like different equipment than other people seem to have. And, you know, like, is yeah. it past lives? Like, yes. Is it right? Is there possibly repressed trauma that I have never, that hasn't surfaced? Probably. Do I feel the need to dig for it? No. Um, 
am I, am I partly an empath and I'm feeling what's happening on the world right now? Yes. And I maybe tapped into bigger spiritual forces. Yes. But like, I also say, maybe I'm just a drama queen. Like I mean that with utter respect for all of us drama queens everywhere. Like some of us just feel more. And I think that that is a beautiful thing. And I think that that's part of why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And it's why I wanted to write this book because I felt so alone for so many years, both the living of the things that happened during this book and then in the, the writing of it. And then it almost destroyed me when, when no one wanted it because I just was like, I, this is my heart. Like this is my life and my heart and the deepest things that I have to say yeah. about the world and, and the world's heart and the meaning of existence. And like the fact that no one would give at the time of day, I was a big blow. It took me a couple of years to kind of come back from that. And it was, I was also learning to be a, a mom to five. And it was sort of like, I guess I'm just changing diapers. I guess that's what I'm here for. I don't, I don't really know. I thought I was supposed to be here to share this, this thing that was so hard won of like, I think it's all love anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I just want to tell you that the people that rejected it are idiots and you don't have to worry about it because like they're just idiots and they can personally call or text me anytime. And I will just say that to their faces. That's fine. Well, and what's funny is that even my experience with publishing this book echoes that line, right? Maybe I became human because I wanted to figure out how to push my way through to love, even when it wasn't handed to me on a platter. And here I am as a writer trying to figure out how to become a writer even when it turns out it wasn't going to go the way I wanted it to. Yeah. You didn't start off with 7 million sales. Mm -mm. No. And I think that's actually perfect. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) My husband's always like, you don't do anything the way anyone does. And I'm like, but I just wanted to do this one, this one thing, this one way, but you know, it's going to be more interesting. And I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't understand even right now. I don't understand how life is unfolding or why or really what it means, but man, I'm here for it. You know, like (laughs) just fucking here for it. It's beautiful that you're here for it. Um, please tell me where I can buy Holy Heathen, where I can find you, where I can find the two of you. Give me a pitch, sell me things. (laughs) All right. You can find me, um, at my website. You can Google my name, Catherine North. That's Catherine with a K. Or you can go to declaredominion.com because my coaching business is all about helping women declare dominion over their lives because I had to work so freaking hard to be able to do that. So now I, it is my great honor and delight to help other people do that. So go to declaredominion.com. Um, I've got a grounding meditation there. It's actually brand new. And um, I think it might, you might find it helpful, especially if like me, you tend to have big feelings. You can find Holy Heathen. There's links on the website to the book. You can find it on really any online bookshop, bookshop.org, IndieBound, any independent bookstore can order it for you. It is of course also available on all of the Amazons and the Primes um, and the big bad corporate places too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the book club. And the book club. And the book club. So if you want to go deeper, if you're curious, if you liked this juicy, scandalous story, um, 
I share my life to some degree publicly on Instagram and in my weekly missives, which you can sign up for if you come to my website, but I share the really juicy stuff, the part that is still in the process of unfolding that I'm like, I don't know what this means, but there's what's happening. I share that in a community called Rich Juicy Starry Beauty because Rich Juicy Starry Beauty, as we've discussed, is kind of my religion now. <laughs> it <is>. would be, <laughs> you would be welcome to come join us there. What's happening now is that I'm getting poems and I'm writing them down and I'm sharing them in that community. So, and I ran a book club um, diving into the things that happened in this book and the process of writing it and publishing it myself. Uh, so if you, if you want to get up close and personal, come, come join me there. Fantastic. Is there anything else that you wish I would have said, covered, talked about, addressed, anything I may failed to mention, anything that's like- I feel like you have not properly um, acknowledged your role in nudging me to publish this. Oh, like you should give yourself more credit for nudging you to publish this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just were relentless and it was great. Because <laughs> I wanted to read it and I didn't want to read the version that was rejected as crappy. I'm like, that's fine. I'll read that one. But like, just, just publish it. Just go, just go. <laughs> yeah, it was good. I, I appreciated that voice. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I'm so glad I did because it's, it's, it's just, just go fucking buy it and read it. And it's magnificent and lovely. And we love it. <laughs> this has been Catherine North on Holy Even. Make it happen. And uh, we will see everybody uh, soon. Thank you for listening. If you do not want to do this election season alone with your phone, I encourage you to check out jointheantidote.com. It's new, it's fantastic. And promo code TRUST takes $33 off until March 12th. So get on it. Again, join theantidote.com. J-O-I-N-T-H-E-A-N-T-I-D-O-T-E.com. Join the antidote.